0: Hi
1: folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 29th, 2018, and this is episode... 2335 2335 We get together on a Thursday And of course this is a listener call show There's two ways that You can get content in for a show like this One is you pick up your phone <clears throat> You probably live with it Practically attached to you anyway And you dial some numbers on there They are 866-65 Think eight six T-H-I-N-K You'll get a voice message service You leave me a message And it will come to me as a WAV file through the magic of the interwebs in an email, and it may end up in a show like this. Odds are it probably will if you follow the rules. The other way is the SpeakPipe. Go to com and click on Contact. And then as long as there's a microphone in your device, computer, phone, etc., you can mash your button, leave me a message, and send it, and it'll come to me also through the magic of the interwebs. Um, the rules for either way, make your call or your contact from a quiet area so that I can hear you without a ton of background noise. Make your point or ask your question in one sentence, then follow it with the details. If you do that, the odds that you will get on the air are very high. Um, Send me an email, you might get on the air. Make a call, follow the rules, you probably will get on the air. It's not 100%, but it's in the high 70s, I would say. Uh, The call volume is nowhere near the email volume. I guess a lot of people don't want to be heard. But as long as I can hear you and your comments or question makes sense, I will probably put you on the air. What are we going to talk about today? I got a question on rehabilitating old fish tanks, which could be for fish nerds like me, or for a lot of the stuff we talk about, like aquaponics and things like that. Fish tanks have, you know, the typical hobbyist fish tank have a role in that. So we'll talk about that today. There's also an entrepreneurial opportunity there that I'll kind of mention while we're doing it. Um, also, how working for the state, and that could be your state of Missouri or Texas or Kansas or Arkansas or the federal government, but working for the state in general, a government job, in some ways, is like slavery. Uh, next up, how to properly mount and level a scope. We'll talk about the the Uber right way and the way that I generally do it with anything that's not going to be a you know a dedicated, long-range shooting rifle. Uh, got a paramedic calling and tells you what the hell you should do when an ambulance running code is behind you. And it ain't what a lot of you do. Yeah, you think you're doing the right thing, but you're not. There's a a saying that I use in this household a lot. I've been using it for a long time. My wife is convinced it comes from f- the TV show Friends, and it is, it is a riff on the character Chandler Bing on the TV show Friends, though he never actually said this uh, that I can find. It was something that I came up and I kind of do with his inflection. You think you're helping, but you're not. And uh, I think in this case, there's a lot of people that when an ambulance is uh, coming up behind you, you think you're helping, but you're not. And we're going to talk about how to help the right way. And I'll give you some of my additional thoughts on, on what this guy's going to say. Uh, more on active shooters in office buildings. We have uh, one of our regular callers and emailers, Jason, uh, just went through some training at his uh, office. And he has some good insights on this, and I'm going to, again, reinforce the concept of run-hide-fight in that scenario. Next, we have some follow-up on the greenhouse show already. Uh, one guy with some really great comments online, and another guy with a call-in about the Texas Prepper Bre- greenhouse, how he built his, and how it actually works well for him. And what would I be planting right now in Texas. Honestly, I'm not planning a lot. i got a few things that need to go in the ground right now, but I've done a lot of my planning for my long-term perennials. We'll talk about why this question really is, well, what do you want to grow uh, when it comes to perennials anyway this time of year? All of that and more before we get into your calls. Let's go ahead and take a look at this day in history. We're going to go back to the year 1952. Eisenhower goes to Korea. Making good on his most dramatic presidential campaign promise, newly elected Dwight David Eisenhower goes to Korea to see whether he can find the key to ending the bitter and frustrating Korean War. During the presidential campaign of 1952, Republican candidate Eisenhower was critical of the Truman administration's foreign policy, particularly its inability to bring an end to the conflict in Korea. President Truman challenged Eisenhower on October 24th to come up with an alternate alternate policy Eisenhower responded with a startling announcement that if he were elected, he would personally go to Korea to get a first-hand view of the situation. The promise boosted Eisenhower's popularity, which, by the way, was already through the roof, and he handily defeated the Democratic candidate Adelaide E. Stevenson. Shortly after his election, Eisenhower fulfilled his campaign pledge, though he's not very specific about exactly what he hoped to accomplish After a short stay, he returned to the United States and yet remained mum about his plans concerning the Korean War. That's because he was from a time when you kept your mouth shut until you actually had the job, by the way. After taking office, however, Eisenhower adopted a get-tough policy toward the communists in Korea. He suggested he would unleash the national Chinese forces on Taiwan against communist China. And he sent only a slightly veiled message that he would use any force necessary, including... The use of nuclear weapons to bring an end to bring the war to an end, unless peace negotiations began to move forward. The Chinese, exhausted by more than two years of war, finally agreed to the terms, and an armistice was signed on July 27, 1953. The United States suffered over 50,000 casualties in this forgotten war, and spent nearly 70 billion dollars. The most frustrating war in U.S. history had come to an end. America's first experience with limited war one in which the nation did not seek and did not obtain absolute victory over the enemy, did not bode well for the future. The conflict in Vietnam was just around the corner. Actually, the conflict in Vietnam was already going on, but not at the level that it will soon be in the history timeline here. Um Let me kind of tell you, I think that Eisenhower did the best he could with a crappy situation. We're going to end this, and either we can end this by kind of resetting things back to the way we, they were before we we started, or we can make this a lot worse for you. And with Eisenhower being at the con, neither the Chinese nor the North Koreans doubted it for a second. And and today the concept of additional use of nuclear weapons is considered like, man, you know, you really, for a thing like this, you, you don't, because yeah, everybody's got them, and then the luff balloons go off, and then we all die. Uh, 1952. The concept that the United States would start making, uh, uh, you know, mushroom clouds, uh, for something like this was not at all off the table yet. And even if it wasn't going to happen, the belief by the North Koreans and the Chinese that we would do it was pretty high. We, we, we had done it just seven years ago in Japan. And when we had dropped one, which really would have been sufficient to end of the war, just to make sure they hurt us, we dropped a second one. That's the 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 big stick that Eisenhower was using here. I go back to one of the few teachers I had in school that I really believe was a great teacher. His name was uh, Dr. Larsson. Yes, he had a Ph.D., uh, even though he chose to teach high school, and I think it's because that's what he wanted to do. He certainly could have been teaching at a university level, no doubt. Um, he... His opinion of the Korean War is it was all a giant screw-up. He was actually not opposed to the U.S. intervention in Korea when South Korea was invaded by the North. He thought that was the right thing to do. It was actually a U.N. operation, by the way. Um, but it was a matter of weeks until, and it was U.N. forces, really U.S. forces, pushed the North Koreans straight out of South Korea, right back across the, the the border. And at that point had the United States maybe taken some land twenty five, fifty miles, and then said, Hey, look, y'all shouldn't have done this. Don't make us get really pissed off. Let's put things back the way that they were. Let's come to an agreement now, and let's end this, and let's understand you're not going to invade our allies. We're not going to let that happen. North Korea probably would have come right to the table. The whole thing would have ended, and it would have been a textbook execution of U.S. forces. That may be on some level a bit oversimplifying things, but I don't know that he's wrong. I think Dr. Larson is a pretty switched on guy when it came to history. that was his 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 mistress, so to speak. And I think that was the mistake. And I think basically what what Truman or I'm sorry what Eisenhower did here was he realized that and he made a play for that to happen after the hornet's nest that is China, was drawn into the war. Because China got into the war when U.S. forces pushed North Korean forces across the freaking Yellow River into China. So we were banging on their back door. Think of it like this. Let's say Mexico started a war with, I don't know, a couple nations in Central America. And uh, they had their own thing going on, and we didn't like it. But right about the point that Mexico's military forces are driven across the Rio Grande, don't you think we might have looked at it a little differently? And we have an arrogance in this country where we think like, well, we're okay if we do these things in these circumstances, but other nations, you know, they shouldn't do it. And it it bit us hard in this war. And this was truly one of the most tragic wars that the United States ever engaged in, Because, in some ways, I think its veterans were treated worse than Vietnam's veterans. Vietnam's veterans were cursed and spit on by part of our population. But they were recognized by another side of our population as as being heroes. And eventually, they were recognized for their heroism by the majority of the country. And if nothing else, when they came home, at least they were noticed. When our men came home from Korea... It was an embarrassment. We had been so high on our horse from World War II. And it's part of why Korea ended up going the way that it did. When the whole conflict kicked off in in Korea, we were still riding high from being, you know, basically we had the We Are the Champions music playing in our head long before Freddie Mercury ever made that song a hit, or even thought about it, probably before he was ever born. Uh, I'm not sure when Freddie was born, but I don't think he was born in 1945 or by 1945. Um, but we had that that kind of mindset. We are the champ. And with no one, no one can stand against us. And, and because of that, rather than take the victory that we had, we we also had some of this mentality going around as well. There was a lot of people that kind of felt like, you know, we had the bomb even though we didn't tell Uh, anybody until we dropped it in japan but we had the bomb pretty much available or knew it would be by ve day in august and i'm sorry in august is when we we dropped it In, in in the spring of 45 we knew and that we should have never capitulated to the russians And we knew the Russians weren't going to be our friend. We should have driven the Russians right out of Eastern Europe back into Russia and said, stay there. And if they didn't, we should have dropped a couple bombs on them to make our point. I know that sounds crazy, but there was a lot of people that felt that way. And when we got to the Korean conflict, the Korean War, that mentality had gotten through a lot of our society and a lot of people in our government. And the concept of just, well, we'll just push them out and, and put things back the way they were at that point was like, oh, we're making the same mistake again. They'll just come back. And that's how we got in the hornet's nest that we did. And by the way, if you wonder why the North Koreans are not exactly fans of the United States during that war, yeah, we, we had 50,000 casualties. We killed about 25% of the people that were in North Korea, 25%, one in four. It was a dark day for U.S. history and, again, I I find Eisenhower to be one of the better presidents we ever had in trying to do the right thing anyway, though he has plenty of errors of his own. But in this case, I think he did the best he could in the situation that he was handed. And it's something we need to think about when we're judging politicians. Um, they don't walk into the world we want. They walk into the world that is. All right. With that, let's go ahead and get into your calls for me today. His first call is on fish tanks. And... uh I have some uh, pretty quick and simple advice for the caller, and I have a couple of little entrepreneurial thoughts that you might uh, might uh find useful if you're looking for a side hustle as well.
2: Hey, Jack and TSP. This is Josh with Beyond Sustainable. I've got a question for Jack today about fish tanks. Uh, I got an old fish tank from a garage sale, and it had some calcium buildup, or what appeared to be calcium buildup, and I have gone at it with some vinegar, and I've also tried lemons and vinegar with baking soda. And I got the majority of it off, but there's still a little bit left. I wanted to see if you had any tips or tricks on cleaning up or restoring old fish tanks. Uh, I did look online, and I saw that bar- Bartender's Friend was uh, recommended, and I've ordered some of that. It's on the way. So I look forward to hearing your answer. Thank
1: you. Take care. Well, it, it it likely is calcium buildup. I talk about having hard water uh, here at at my place, and and I have unusually hard water. But the reality is, most of the United States has hard water. We we're more of a hard water uh, society than a soft water society. Uh, there are places that's uh, different, but in in most instances, we have fairly hard water across the country. Uh, and that calcium buildup does happen on fish tanks. And especially where it happens is at the water line. Um, and a lot of these older tanks that you'll find maybe sat somewhere with water in them for a long time. Uh, and wherever that level of water was sitting in them, uh, that's kind of where that buildup happens. the The easiest thing you can use is a razor blade. It's glass. Uh, and unless you cut into the glass with the razor blade, you can pretty much get just about anything, including paint, off of glass with a razor blade. You want the type of a razor blade tool that you would use to remove, let's say, uh, an inspection sticker or a registration sticker from the window of a car. We're using a standard razor blade, straight-edge razor blade, uh, and it's in something you can hold hard with your hand, uh, I'll put a link to a, a two-piece set that I actually use with my aquarium maintenance on Amazon. It's a short one and a long one. Um, I use them for things like, remove, like if I'm rehabbing a tank and it's got some marks up on it and stuff like that, for removing that. I also use it for removing what's called spot algae, though I have a dedicated tool for that. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to get off of the glass. Uh, Spot algae is the little green dots of algae that show up inside your fish tanks. Uh, There's a lot of things you can do to minimize it, but sooner or later, most people with aquariums end up dealing with it. And that razor blade uh, will take it just straight off. And it will probably take most of your calcium buildup off. On that, though, I think sometimes people are afraid to use any sort of chemical with a fish tank that could be dangerous to the fish, which it yeah, makes sense. Um, but there's a difference between using it when there's fish swimming around in it, there's water in it, and you're just trying to clean it up, and using it, for instance, when um, it's totally taken down and you're rehabbing it and going to reuse it again. Uh, in that case, uh, solvents, you know, dissolve stuff. And the solvent you might look to, uh, for most things that you would do with a fish tank, is a solvent called acetone. Uh, It dries very, very quickly, and when it dries and goes away, it's pretty much gone, and it will take off things like uh, calcium buildup fairly well. It also does something else, though. It dissolves silicone. So you do not want to use it heavily along the seams of the aquarium. That brings me to my next thing with rehabbing aquariums that you get used, Um, Always leak test them. Always take a good look at the silicon in the seams around the edges and the bottom. If it's an old tank and it hadn't been used for a long time, even if it holds water, it's probably best to go ahead and cut out all the silicon on the inside of the tank. Not holding the plates of glass together, but the silicon that actually is visible. And I'll put a link... Uh, to a video where uh, a guy I really like on his YouTube channel about aquariums shows you how to do this. He says it can be done in 15 minutes. It took me like three days. Um, However, I didn't really know what I was doing. It was the first time I ever did it. Uh, I didn't have the right type of scraping tool. At first I was just using like a free razor blade. That made it a lot harder than it needed to be. Uh, One of the things I really recommend that you use to get like all the silicon out of the old tank is a shop vac, because I tried to sweep it up and use get it out, and it was a mess. It was all sticking to the glass, and I got a shop vac, and it was perfect. So, uh, But he basically shows you what to do. You basically cut all the old silicone out. If you have some stuck on, you can use some acetone, but don't get it in the seam where it's actually holding the panes of glass together. Then you lay down some painter's tape at the width you want of the silicone bead. You get silicone with a caulking gun, and you shoot a bead. You rub it with your finger. A friend of mine told me after I did my first one that one of the best things you can do is get some Windex and wet your finger with Windex. When you wipe that silicone, and it won't stick to your finger at all, you'll get a nice, much flatter bead. Uh, Having done it once, and it was a pain in the butt, and uh, I do think that you know, maybe 15 minutes is not right for a bigger tank like a 55-gallon that I did, but probably 30 minutes. Uh, and one, as you get better, you probably can do one in about 15 minutes. Uh, you know, when you're confident in what you're doing, you could, you could do that. Why do I bring all this up? Well, one, you know, this isn't the pet show, right? This isn't the, the fish keepers show. Uh, this is a survival podcast. And we talk about self-sufficiency, independence, liberty. We talk a lot about aquaponics and all. So a fish tank question in general Um, there's a lot of things you can do with a fish tank for your aquaponics. For instance, you can set up a rather large fish tank with some holes and hides. You can breed tilapia in it, keep them indoor, breed your own fry, and put them out into your aquaponics system every year, and that would be one reason you might want a tank. But the other thing we talk around here about is side hustles. And I have found that looking on Craigslist, you will often find fish tanks on Craigslist for almost no money compared to what they are, because they leak. And there's two reasons the tank will leak. One reason is that the tank has a crack. There are ways to fix that. Uh, The King of DIY has a pretty good uh, book, ebook, and I'll put a link to that as well, um, that you can get. You get the electronic version or the, the hard copy version, where he talks about fixing cracks. And some cracks are fairly easy to fix, and some are more difficult. Some can be fixed with... No aesthetic consequences whatsoever, and some you really probably wouldn't want them from an aesthetic standpoint. But the easiest cracks are the ones on the bottom, because basically you just silicone a piece of glass over them. And since it's covered with substrate, you don't see it. Where are we going with side hustles? Some of you already know. I'll get there in a second. The other thing is the crack could be in the front or back, and if it's limited, it can also be fixed very similarly. And as long as it's on one side only of the long dimension of the aquarium... That can become the back, and you can basically hide it with a, uh, some sort of a background. Okay. Now, people spend a lot of money on aquariums. People spend a lot of money on fish. People spend a lot of money on plants for aquariums. There's a lot of money in the aquarium business. I believe that one of the side hustles that would be available to people is finding these tanks that are in bad shape. People do not know how to fix them or just don't care to fix them. And then be be pretty malicious with your negotiating. It leaks, dude. Yeah, I know. I know this tank sells for a hundred bucks new. It's not new, and it leaks. I'll give you ten bucks for it. But if you can take that ten bucks, put thirty minutes into fixing that tank, and sell that tank for fifty dollars, you just made forty dollars in thirty minutes. And if you start doing some, you know. Background development and things like that. Learn how to do like artificial backgrounds and all. Um, and if you can get the material for next to nothing, and you can put together a tank with a, with a faux background that somebody would have to pay three hundred bucks for, uh, you probably can sell it for a hundred dollars or hundred fifty bucks. And so I think that, and and then don't get caught up in the fish tanks thing. Like this is an example of a relatively easy to fix problem. This tank leaks. It's worth a lot more money if it doesn't leak. I can fix it in 15 to 30 minutes. The better I get at it, the faster I can do that. The more I think about the resources I need, the more I can do with it. So what can you then apply that to other than fish tanks? And the answer is a whole bunch of stuff. We had a guy at the most recent workshop that he was just going around and looking at what people were throwing away, picking it up and fixing it. And he was fixing washers and dryers. And he was finding a lot of times people who washers and dryers have to get rid of them, uh, and neither one of them is broken. They just got new ones, and uh, so they just get rid of them. They just and, and they don't want to take the time to sell them. Or the other thing was that like a lot of times people would have a washing machine go bad, so they would go out and get a new washer and dryer. And when if you picked them up, you only had to figure out how to fix one or the other, and then you had a set you could sell. So that's just another example. There's a lot of opportunity in this world for people that will hustle and figure out how to correct the problems others don't know how to correct or don't want to correct and are willing to pay for someone else to do it. Just a thought. Anyway, let's take another one, this one on how working for the state can be like slavery.
2: Hi, Jack. This is Bryce in Florida. Just making a quick comment on just the, the change, I guess you would say, that it comes with even just working for government. I worked for the jail at uh, over here in Florida for seven years, and you know it was good pay. It was good benefits, but there really wasn't any drive towards freedom in it. You know, everybody would just come in and check their check their boxes, and and that's what they did. So now that I've gotten now, it's just interesting to see the difference of an actual drive towards being better. Specifically, I've gotten into sales. And just the the different skills I've had to develop to actually convince people to do business with me. I'm, and like working in the jail, taking bonds, you don't have a choice. Versus now I have to earn your business. So just the interesting things working for the state and now working for the actual private market where I have to actually earn business. And strive to be better instead of just checking the box. So just some thoughts, man. Keep up the good work. You know, delivery and all, man, all that stuff. Y'all have a good one.
1: So yeah, I'll agree, and and I think it's 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 true what what you said there that because you just have to check the boxes and do the things that are required of you, and you don't really gain much by doing more than that. You don't really do much by more, doing more than that. Therefore, you become kind of an automaton and maybe there is some sort of a rank or promotion structure but those are also boxes that you check usually it's not so much that you know you 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 do better than the guy next to you but your boxes always get checked and his boxes get checked most of the time and then there's other boxes like you have to go take this course or you have to get so many additional you know like some jobs it's you have to get some college or whatever but you don't really give a shit about the the, the, the schooling or training you're getting it's just to tick the box and and there's a great deal of of truth in that 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 makes a government job somewhat like slavery because You don't really have any free will in what you're doing, and you don't generally have the opportunity to make decisions uh, based on your own intuition or what you believe is right. You just do what you're supposed to do. And in fact, even when you do it and, 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 and take a risk, and even when you're right, and even when it works out and you don't get in trouble for it, it doesn't help you. It's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, whatever. But you don't like get the Free Thinker's Award as a prison guard or a soldier or somebody that works at the DMV. And the more you do of it, even if it works out, the more you're considered a problem. So everybody kind of falls into this, I just go along, get along type of a mindset. But there's something that really makes it like slavery. And it is time And the reward in exchange for the time, and I don't mean on a daily basis where you show up five days a week, eight hours a day, you get your paycheck. No, I'm talking about retirement. One of the ways to really keep a person controlled is to offer them the big carrot at the end of their control. And that, you know, with government jobs, because of the ability to steal money, which they call taxation, And to borrow money based on the future ability to steal money through taxation of the next generation, uh, governments have way more access to money than private companies ever could hope to in a direct relationship of size to revenue, right? So yeah, there's some major corporations that have way more access to way more money than let's say a, a small town in Indiana, but... Relative to the number of people that are involved and what they do for revenue, um, they, can, you know, they can do things like promise a pension for life. And you think that's a good thing until you realize what it does to people. Because what I've seen is the longer a person stays in a state-based employment where they have that care at the end of it, the more willing they are to compromise who and what they are on a daily basis. And this is one of the reasons I got out of the Army when I did. I only did one term of enlistment. And you get to that point, they call it your reenlistment window, and it's, I don't know what it is now, but in my time it was eight months to three months. Once you were past three months on the way out, it wasn't, you couldn't realistically, they didn't bother you about it anymore. They figured you weren't going to do it. So it was that you had, every unit had a reenlistment NCO. He was basically like an internal recruiter. His job was to figure out what incentive the Army could offer if they wanted to keep you to get you to stay. And what I realized is the longer a a person I knew in a leadership role had been in the military, the less they thought for themselves and the less they cared. Even the really good ones that seemed like they cared about me, when it came to the grand overall concept of being a soldier, they cared less. And you could tell when they hit like, you know, 15 years and if they had a rank sufficient that if they didn't get promoted again, it didn't matter. At 20, they were going to get their retirement. They would do anything they were asked to do if it meant that they would be left alone and as long as, let's say, they weren't gassing people to death or something. Like, you know, it just didn't matter anymore. They didn't care anymore. And they seemed, most of them seemed miserable. Uh, there was an, an acronym, I'm sure it's probably still used. We called them lifers. And it was lazy, inefficient F that rhymes with truck, expecting retirement. And when I realized it wasn't them that was the problem, it was... You know, I'm too close. I'm too close to drawing the paycheck for the rest of my life, even though it's not that big of one, to mess it up now. I'm too close to risk it. And when, when I saw that, I was like, I, I don't want this for my future. I don't want to be that. And it was easy. It was easy being 21 years old and to go, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I wasn't... Invested in my chains yet. I was happy to go back to being a civilian and being 21 and unemployed, you know, isn't that big of a deal? I mean, I know if you need money and a job and all, yeah, sure, it, it could be a problem, but you know, 21 and you're unemployed, people are not like, well, why don't you have a job? Well, I just got out of the military. Oh, okay. And you can find a job. You can find something to do. I didn't have, you know, once I decided that I wanted to go back to work and I was done with my sabbatico in life, it wasn't that hard to find a job. It wasn't a great job to start out, but finding a job was like, I, like I'm going to get a job. And it's, a, it's like Saturday evening, I'm hanging out with my new friends that I'd met down here in Texas. Oh, you're going to get a job? Yeah, I'm going to get a job this week. You know, like, and then next Saturday we're hanging out again. So how, did you, how, how's your job search going? Oh, I got a job. I mean, it was so, it like, and could I afford to live on a job like that today? No. Could I do it at 21? Yeah, it was easy. And so the longer we we vest ourselves into something, the more controlled we become by it. And that's true of corporate jobs, too. And the reality is, whenever you work for anyone, on some level... It has, even if it's not slavery, it has analogs to slavery because they get to determine what you can do, how you do it, when you do it, if you can take off, when you can take off. And the more they can offer you in return for you continuing to do it for a duration of time, the more that becomes true, the closer you get to that finish line. And one of the things that's really sad, though, in, and this is more true in the private sector, that promise will often be yanked away within years uh, of it being fulfilled. I have good friends in New Jersey. I think they still listen to the show, Kathy and Ed. And uh, he worked for a company with a guaranteed retirement at 20 years. He would have gotten a guaranteed retirement. And it was something like 17 years in. He'd given his heart and soul, solely helped build the company. And, and for no cause, they just terminated him. And it was so they could avoid having to pay it. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Bye. Here's your severance, see you. And, you know, it happens. And this is why I'm big on side hustles. This is why I'm big on entrepreneurship. It's not that you can make more money. You can, but it's not that you will. But if you if you develop something for yourself, you live a more free life and from a standpoint of what you're able to choose for yourself. Uh, insightful call. Let's take another one. This one on mounting scopes.
0: Hey, Jack. This is Josh. What's the proper way to mount a scope, uh, mount inside sight in? I have uh, a World War One era um, Argentine Mauser in 7.65 by 53. Um, it, it looks like it was brand new. I took it to a gunsmith to have the scope mounted, and he said it's such a nice rifle that uh, he doesn't want to take the risk of messing it up. Well. I found uh I found an adapter where you can take the rear sight aperture off and um, and and install uh the scope mount for it. So I've done that. There are no modifications to the rifle. Um, and, and this is a rifle dating back to eighteen ninety eight, so so it's it's a fairly old rifle. It does use modern ammo though. Um, so so anyway, um my my question is I've got it mounted but I know I need to level it. Now, I don't have a lead sled or anything like that. I'm sure I could probably rent one at a range, um, and then I I reckon I would need a a scope level. But if you could just walk me through that process, uh, I would appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Have a good one.
1: Well, let's start out with a bit of a mini rant on gunsmiths. Um, Gunsmiths seem to make a living out of avoiding work and taking forever to finish a project. I am not sure how anybody actually remains in business as a gunsmith, uh, and makes a living as a gunsmith given the propensity gunsmiths have to take a gun and have a job they need to do to it that should take, you know, a couple weeks and take a couple years to get it done, if ever. Um, I had a shotgun way back when I was a teenager that I was able to come up with a really good deal on. It was an old uh, Model 25 Winchester pump shotgun, and um, it it, 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 I was like I got it for like 50 bucks. And uh, this was a really nice shotgun, but it 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 was really worn. It needed a refinished stock and it needed to be reblued. So I was like, well, I can refinish the stock. I'll, I'll get it reblued first, and then I'll do the woodwork because I'm pretty good at that. And I took it to this gunsmith my uncle knew named Kiefer, and uh, he had it for like six months. And my uncle came home one day and said, you probably just need to go get your gun back from Kiefer. And I said, why? He said, it's leaning up against a radiator, and it's, pr- it's practically rusting to the radiator as we speak. He had done nothing with it. And I went and got my gun back and, and uh, ended up doing my best at, at doing a reblu myself, which wasn't perfect, but it was a hell of a lot better than what Kiefer didn't do. Um, so I just don't like gunsmiths. I think a lot of times when they say stuff, well, it's such a good gun. I don't want to mess it up, shut up and do the work or tell me somebody that will. Um, I had a, a, a gun for instance, it was already been sporterized, a 1917 Enfield. There's the thirty oh six version, the U S version of the Enfield from world war one, not the British Enfield that people are more familiar with. And, uh, the guy had self-done it, and when he mounted the scope, he had drilled the receiver. And really, um, the, the location of the drill and tapped holes weren't really where they should be. Uh, the, 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 the scope bases were too wide, uh, making only very limited number of scopes able to go into them. But the real problem was when you looked at the rifle, the scope was canned to one side. So I took it to a gunsmith at a range that I frequent and said, well, I'd like to do is have uh, the receiver uh, the, where it's been drilled and tapped basically just filled in and, and, and welded and then redrilled. And he said, it's not worth doing. A gun's not worth as much as that'll cost. And I said, well, isn't that for me to decide? Like, you know, can, can you not quote that work? And he hummed and hawed, and I'm like, do you not want the job? He said, well, not really. I so said, why don't you just say that? By the way, I'll never come to you for anything again because you turned down work. So you must have more work than you can handle, even though you don't look very busy. But why bullshit me? Right? It doesn't cost that much to fill a couple holes in and drill a couple holes. And I got the work done by somebody that actually, you know, was wanting to do the work. So... Always temper what a gunsmith says against the fact that most of them, and I know I'm going to get some hateful emails, and if you're not one of them, you don't need to worry about it. You need to be happy with what I'm saying because that's your competition. Most gunsmiths just seem to be lazy sons of bitches that don't want to do any work. It's sad and pathetic, and most of them also run gun shops and things like that, and I think they make their living selling guns not doing work. Now, there are some good ones. I've seen them, and I appreciate them. When you find one, You want to stick with that one. You don't want to shop something out for 25 bucks less with somebody that's going to leave it, you know, rust to a radiator. But my experience, taxidermists and gunsmiths, just, I don't know, they spend more time drinking at the bar than doing their job, I guess. Anyway, on this, let's talk about what I generally do with a rifle for general use. I take that rifle and I put it in, you said you don't have a lead sled. I put it in some kind of a rest, and I look at it, and I get the rifle by eyesight plumb so the top of the board's at 12 o'clock. And there's a lot of different things you can buy to do this with, but if you don't have anything else, you can do it with a vise. I'm talking about a, you know, a shop vise. Put a piece of uh, you know material, like an old shirt or cloth, around the gun in the vice grip so that it doesn't mar your finish. And you know, tighten that vise up and get it where you want it, and tighten it. I then take the scope, I set the eye relief where I want it based on how I you know hold and shoulder the rifle, and I have the scope mounts uh, tightened enough to where the scope will stay put, but I can still turn it. And I turn it till it looks like center uh, reticle is plumb, and I tighten it down and I tighten each of the scope mount bolts a little at a time and do it gradually all around so they get an even tightening. As I do that, I continue to check to make sure that that reticle looks plumb to the bore, and then when it's tightened, I take it out and side it in, and I generally have no problems, and I can shoot rifles like that out 300 yards all day long, and uh, any gain by being perfect is probably in general shooting beyond my ability as a shooter out to 300 yards where I'm pretty damn solid, so I don't care. If I was going to be using a rifle for extreme long range in competition where every little tick and millimeter matters, then I would do this more properly, and it's a little difficult to explain. I have a great article by a former sniper on how to do this with simple spirit levels, Uh, But it's pretty much the same procedure, except that when we get the rifle in whatever's holding it, we find a part of the rifle where we can put a spirit level to level the rifle so that the bore is to the 12 o'clock. We're not worried about the bore being leveled to the ground, though the more that's true, the better. And then we take a second spirit level and we put it on the scope, and we level the scope. We don't have a scope level, we use a little bitty spirit level, we use like a line level. You know what a line level is? They're a couple inches long, and they're designed to take a string and put it between two places. You hang that level on a string, and then you can level that line. Those will work fine to sit up on a scope. Um, And you just make sure that, again, that the the rifle is level to the 12 o'clock, to the bore, and you make sure that the scope is level, and you set your eye relief, and you do everything else the same way. Um, there are other tools and apparatuses to do that, but it, again, I don't think, especially shooting a surplus Mauser from 1898, uh, that you're going to be out shooting Wimbledon thousand-yard competitions, and I think it's beyond what's necessary. I have a link to that article in the show notes for you. I know I'm going to hear from people about how wrong I am with this, and I'll tell you, this is how I feel. Um, over the last you know, 20 years of my life, I've shot an awful lot of deer and hogs. I've shot them anywhere from 30, 40 yards out to 350 yards. Uh, I've never pulled the trigger on an animal like that uh, that didn't get hit, and every single one I've ever hit died. Um, the only one in the last 20 years that required a second shot um, was a psychedeer that I hit through the shoulder blade perfectly, but the bullet turned 90 degrees and broke its back. It wasn't going anywhere, but weird things happen with ballistics sometimes. Uh, and it didn't open any major arteries or organs, and the damn thing wasn't wasn't gonna bleed out. It was just sitting there with its head flopping around, and I don't know if you've ever seen a psychic but they look like a small elk. And I wasn't gonna go try to cut its throat or nothing. So I shot it a second time. Uh, other than that, you're talking, you know, uh, fifty, sixty big game animals, one shot dead. Um, okay, I'm done, and that's that's why I gave the right way. But also gave the everyday way. And when I was a kid, and I grew up in Pennsylvania, one of the most you know deer hunter populated states there is, no one worried about this to that level. You put a, and most people didn't even put the gun in a damn vise. You set the scope in the rings, you set it semi-tight so you could still move it, but it wouldn't move on its own. You shouldered the rifle naturally, you got the scope set for adjustment. And while you're holding the rifle, you kept playing with it until that rectangle was plumb, and you tightened it up and you went about your way. And in those 20 years, before these 20 years, you know, I saw a lot of deer dead and I didn't see a lot of them missed where you couldn't, where you could blame the scope or the gun not being mounted properly. Just, just saying. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one.
3: Hey, Jack, my name is David. Uh, I am a paramedic out here in Texas, and I just had a comment regarding uh, what to do whenever an ambulance pulls in behind you. Uh, Typically, the ambulance is going to be driving in the left lane, so if you can get to the right, um, pull off the main roadway, at least slow down, uh, that's excellent. Don't just stop. That is not helpful for anyone. Um, Occasionally, if we come to a red light, we will go to the right. Um, That does not mean go ahead and drive through the intersection, especially if you have a red light, that means make a right-hand turn. It may put you out of your way a few minutes, um, but those few minutes may save somebody's life, and you getting in an accident in front of us is going to stop us from responding to the call we were already on. Um, That's pretty much it. I was just thinking about it and really, noticed a lot of people don't know what to do when an emergency vehicle pulls in behind them. Thanks for everything you
1: do. Um, what I'll add to this is that many times when you're dealing with an ambulance or police running code or anybody coming through running code, that the, it, with, if you have a multi-lane road and you're out ahead of them and there is no obstructing traffic in front of you and they're coming up on the left... Get in the right lane and slow down and let them pass, but don't stop. Um, Stopped traffic creates a hindrance, and I am blown away. I'll be on a three-lane road, and you got a fire truck or an ambulance coming up, and everybody stops. Well, how the hell are they supposed to get past you, you idiots? Especially when I see people stopping at an intersection with a green light when the ambulance is behind you. Then I think you should proceed through the intersection. Now, if you're on a, a, you know, where that, where you're going to be an obstruction to the ambulance, making that right turn, getting out of the way, assuming you even know whether they want to go straight or right, by the way, uh, you you might do what what the caller said. He's a pro. It's what he does. He understands it. But I'm telling you, there's so many times, and I see people looking at me like, I'm the idiot. I'll have somebody running code behind me, and I don't stop. I get over and I watch how they're moving so that I can get my vehicle out of the way. If everybody stops and you end up with somebody in front of you and behind you, how do you move if you're the obstruction now? So I think this concept that everybody just stops is just stupid. And it's it's what I say during the interview. You think you're helping, but you're not. And I try to just simply... Observe the situation and not say, well, I should do this, I should do that, as in thinking like a government employee. When X happens, do Y. When Y happens, do Z. When Z happens, ask your supervisor. That That's not how I think. I am a human being with a brain and common flippant sense, so I look at the totality of the situation and go, what do I do? To make myself least in the way of these people trying to save somebody's life. And I, I, I guess maybe most people should do if X do Y and if Y do Z because most people in this society don't seem to have common sense anymore. But assuming that you do, my advice to you is to look at the totality of the situation And try to get yourself out of the way in a way that is safe for you and safe for everybody around you. And sometimes that is not stopping. Sometimes that is not stopping. Especially when you're already in the middle of an intersection or something like that. Especially when you're sitting there and you have an ambulance coming up on you in the left lane. You're the guy in the left lane and two people next to you are stopping on a three-lane road. Accelerate and change lanes. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. All right. I'm done. I'm glad he called. That stuff bothers me. Let's take another one. This one on uh, a different type of emergency an active shooter.
4: Hey, Jack, Jason from PA here. And I just wanted to follow up on your, uh, uh, content regarding being in a high rise building for fires and active shooters. Uh, we had a recent training and as well, certain things that I'll, um, put forth, but, um, one of the things that was really important with the active shooters is they talked about when the door couldn't be opened, the survival rate was dramatically higher. You're talking about like 80, 90% survival rate versus like 20, 30%. Um, So blocking the door and different ways to block the door, which a lot of people may not, you know, consider. For instance, a lot of the doors in office buildings have those little hinges. And if you take a belt and wrap those tight, It will prevent the door from being opened. Um, If, you know, a simple door opens inward, a simple piece of bar that's in the floor can prevent that. So you can easily modify an office building to, you know, keep doors from being opened if needed. Um, The other thing a lot of people don't realize, you always see in movies, they're trying to break the window, they grab the chair, and they throw it, you know, keep banging the center of the window. Well, glass flexes. Um, so if you actually need to ever break a window in a building, you want to hit it at the edge near a corner where the glass has the least, you know, amount of flex and ease of, either it can be cracked or pushed out easiest. Um couple things with the fire, if for whatever reason you're blocked and you can't get down and you just need to get down, you know, a floor or two and the stairways are blocked. Um, one thing, you know, you're not going to have all that repelling rope. But fire hoses are actually amazingly durable. So if you can find a fire hose in the building and remove it, that can be used to lower yourself down about a floor, or two, or three. And, you know, just make sure the first person down also has something, you know, hard and focused metal point so that they can crack open the uh, window and people can get down and hopefully get down further floor. Um, But one of the main things they say is being out of sight, and as you mentioned that, um, people talk about hiding under desks. Well, active shooters have learned to look under desks. If you hide under a desk, push chairs in and actually lay on top of the chairs. That way they can look under the desk, not see your feet, and they'll move on usually. Um, The last thing I'll put forth is most handgun rounds are actually very weak, and – like three reams of paper or equivalent books actually will tend to stop most handgun rounds from penetrating through. Not all, but um, you've got an increased chance if you've got that door blocked and he's just going to fire through the walls, grab every textbook you have and hold it over the key parts, you know, center torso, center mass head, just duck and hold that in front, and your chances of survival dramatically increase. Hopefully none of us ever find ourselves in that situation, either fire or active shooter. But if you do, maybe if one of those tips helps keep your loved ones safe, I thought I'd share.
1: Good call. Um, One of the things I'll add, the number one thing for breaking a window is a hammer. And um, I think a hammer is a useful tool in so many situations um i in my desk when i had an office i had a hammer i had some other hand tools and stuff but I always had a, a good uh hammer uh so i'll just add that as far as being able to break windows as far as being able to lock doors especially like double doors that jason was talking about you know another thing that i i always had as part of my kit when i worked in office buildings for this and other reasons is some chain and padlocks it's it's simple it's quick it's effective and those are things that you could have that, like, generally won't cause, like, facilities manager or something like that to get upset that you've, you know, somehow brought a weapon to work or something like that. On, on another note, uh, I'm about to talk about run, hide, fight as a concept. And if you work in some locations, you can carry a gun with you to work. And if you can, you probably should. Um, including if it's just because your employer is stupid and didn't know how to properly say that you couldn't. And I see that happen a lot where um, the building will say, you know, you can't carry a gun, but in the state of Texas, there's a way that you put that up. And if you don't put it up that way, then it doesn't apply to someone that has a concealed carry license. It just doesn't. And part of your training ability, your license, is to know the way that that does and does not apply to you. Government buildings and certain other buildings are different, but a private building, and they put up a sign that just says a gun with a cross through it, that does not apply to a concealed carry holder in Texas. Uh, And if your employer relied on that because they're a tenant in that building and they don't have a specific prohibition, then, uh, yeah, right? Because I'd rather be wrong and alive than right and dead uh, in that type of situation. But even if you're armed, what I'm about to say in 99% of situations, probably should be the same. Because the number one thing that you do in a conflict where somebody's trying to kill you is get off the X. Armed or not armed, does it matter. Get off the X, seek cover concealment, right? And get out of the situation if you can. So there is the point where you have to decide, if you're armed... Or even if you're not armed, if you think you can stop the attacker, are you willing to risk your life to try to save the lives of others? And that's a personal decision. That's something you have to make a decision for yourself. And I wouldn't tell anybody what, what I would or wouldn't do because, one, I'm not faced with it yet, and two, every situation is different. Every situation is different. If I think I can save more lives by getting people the hell out, I'll probably take that approach and leave it to the responders to take the guy out. If I think everybody's going to die, then I'm probably going to risk my life to try to stop it some way or another. But the first thing I'm going to do is get off the X. And that was where we go to the concept of run-hide-fight. And this is what should be in... The, instead of giving kids at colleges hockey pucks, which is the latest stupidity to come out of the left, um, which, by the way, I actually think makes more sense than giving them nothing. I know a guy I went to high school with. I think if he threw a hockey puck at you from what, 25 yards, you're probably dead. All right, so, you know, maybe, I don't know. But run, hide, fight. And so the first thing to do is there is someone trying to kill people in this building. The best thing I can do if I'm not in a position to try to stop that person is get out of the building. Remove myself as a target and take anybody I can with me, and that way when security or law enforcement comes, we're people they don't have to worry about. They don't have to worry about shooting us by accident. They don't have to worry about being a hostage. We're out of the way. So that's, can we get the hell out? If you can get out, you get out. If you can take other people with you, you take other people with you. If you can't get out, then you hide. And I think, in most instances, even when armed, this makes sense. Because if I, I get off, hide and run are about getting off the X. So there could be the situation, guy comes in, and starts shooting, I'm armed, I have the immediate ability to effectively draw down and, and fire. Well, of course, you take that opportunity if you're, so, if you're the kind of person willing to take the risk and do it, and you also are willing to take a human life, because that's something other people, people often forget. Some people are not willing to take a human life, even in defense of others, even in defense of their own. They don't want to live with it. And I won't condemn that person. Again, it's a personal choice. But in most situations, you're not in that situation. So you move off the X and you seek cover and concealment. We call that hiding. Cover means they can't see you. Uh, concealment means they can't see you. Cover is what Jason was talking about with books and stuff. It actually stops bullets. And how effective that that, 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 uh, that cover is, de- is dependent upon the weapon and the cover and the situation and the range and all. But as soon as that's done, if you are armed, Now you have the opportunity to choose your moment of attack. If you're not armed, you have the ability to arm yourself with, yes, a hockey puck, a chain, a hammer, whatever. And wait. And choose your moment to attack. And that moment to attack, if you're not properly armed, is probably when, if we don't do this now, he's just we're just going to sit here and get shot. And I ain't doing that. You know, I'll go for eyes, throat scrotum, I don't care, you're going to kill me, I'm going to hurt you and try to take you with me. Right? And that's the mindset that you have to have. But the reason to do this, even if you're armed, is one of the most poignant statements I've ever heard made by a firearms instructor was Frank Sharp Jr. from Fortress Defense Consultants. When asked, what should you expect if you shoot at a person who ends up being wearing body armor, was... You should expect the same thing you should always expect when you shoot at somebody that's trying to kill you. You just should expect nothing to happen. You should expect nothing to happen. People are mortally wounded all the time and continue for for, for different durations. And a lot of people have been killed or injured by a dying person. So the, the thought that, well, these guys, is he's shooting and I'll just shoot him twice in the chest and he'll go down. Sometimes it works that way. Sometimes it doesn't. And I'll give you an extreme example of where it didn't. Fortunately, no one else got hurt. My dad ran a tire store in Jacksonville, Florida, in a pretty bad side of town. One, there was multiple times people were robbed, people were shot, things like that, right around the area. One of the times this happened, a guy came in to rob a convenience store and held the place up with a handgun, and there were two people behind the counter. One of them was a man who had a shotgun under the countertop, pulled the shotgun out, and just shot the guy in the head close-range shotgun wound to the head. Blew about a third of the man's head off. I mean off. Gone. Not a hole. Gone. Brain matter. Gone. You'd expect this guy to drop like a rock. He dropped his gun, ran to the door, pushed it open, and ran about 30 yards, and then fell dead. Now, parts of his brain were clearly switched off, Flight or, you know, fight or flight, flight is what won the day, and the guy took off. He was holding a handgun. If he could run 30 yards, he could empty the handgun, even randomly. So the reason we want to choose our point of attack if we can, and you can't always do it, is because of that alone. You can put four rounds in a guy's chest, and he could, he could, he could die in minutes or even seconds and still kill you or somebody else. The more we have the ability to choose the point of attack, the more we can deliver the attack and actually maybe take cover again. Let the guy bleed out. Let him realize he's shot. Panic from it, whatever it is. Continue the assault. What, it all depends. Precision shot, you know. I'm telling you, if the guy gets shot at the base of the skull where it joins the spine, there's dead. bam, you're done. it's over. If that shot happens, that guy's going down, right? So run, hide, fight. What we're teaching our children in schools that I think is a, a moral, a mortal sin as a society is hide. Just hide. That's what we're teaching our kids in schools with this, this kind of shit happening. Hide. Just get in the corner and close the door and wait. No. Run, hide, fight. And that means that once you've taken a position where you're hiding, what around you is a weapon, what can you use, and are you really hiding the way you should be? Or should you be setting up so that if that door opens, he can't see where you are, and next thing you know, there's 20 people pounding his face into the ground. Armed or not armed. You know? If there's a group, you talk about who's grab the gun, especially a rifle. It's much easier to get your hands on. Grab and control. Everybody else go behind. Grab the face, grab the throat. Kick the balls, rake the shins, whatever you got to do, get the weapon out of his hand, and then beat him to death, or at least until he stops moving. He's trying to kill you. But we're not teaching people that. That needs to be your mindset if you want to survive one of these situations, if God forbid you ever end up in one of them. Let's take another one from the audience here. This is on greenhouses.
0: Jack, this is Josh. Uh, listening to your uh, podcast right now about greenhouses. And I actually built the Texas Prepper Greenhouse five years ago. Um, I did not go with the Home Depot or Lowe's film. Um, I actually went with uh, GreenhouseSupply.com, I think, is a website, but I went with their greenhouse fabric or greenhouse plastic material. That material's five years old and it's, it's still going strong. And that being said, I'm in the Houston, Texas area, so I don't need a whole lot of cold protection um, but I do have I do have areas you know or, or or bouts of cold that get down in the you know high teens low twenties, and what I've done is I've put uh barrels fifty five gallon black barrels in there along the south side I'm sorry, yes, along the south side, uh, facing the sun. And I did that because what I do is I overwinter trees in there like my avocado and mango and citrus, um, limes and things like that. So I, I pack all those in there tight before the first frost. That sun heats up the, uh, the barrels, the black barrels and heats that water up and that slowly releases at night. And I've got it tight enough, um, that it, that it works pretty good. Now I do have one of those automatic openers for the for the window and so that way when i have these warm winter days um, it'll actually air out and, and the plants won't overheat but i just wanted to put that out there you're absolutely right those are those are easy and cheap to build but uh, go with the high quality uh, fabric and, I, and then, like i said i think mine is from GreenhouseSupply.com, but that may not be right but either way i just wanted to comment on there um anyway i l I'm loving this show and uh to be honest with you, I do want another greenhouse. Um I I want a better one. But that one cost me seventy bucks or so to build. No, that yeah, about seventy bucks to build and then another seventy five dollars for the plastic. So hundred and fifty bucks I'm all in, it lasted me five years and uh, you know, can't complain about that. Either way, bud, love the show. Have a good one. Bye.
1: Well, first, I guess I was a little hard on the Texas Prepper greenhouse, which is the greenhouse built basically from a wood frame, um, cattle panels, and then you build your ends to match the arch. But I did say that, that if you were going to do this, a proper greenhouse film where you can actually wrap around those ends and actually get it sealed up would probably be the way to go. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad this is working for the guy that called in. Um I, I still think it's probably not the best um, way to build a greenhouse. I really don't. I don't think it has enough insulative value, though I'm about to give you another product that would help with that. And I think it gives me an opportunity to point something out that I, maybe I missed in that you know hour-and-a-half-long show on greenhouses. I didn't really point this out. Any greenhouse only gives you so much protection no matter what you do above the outside, which means the less you need, the less the greenhouse has to give you. So this guy's near Houston. And when you're talking about things like avocados and stuff, you know, they handle like that edgy, just to the edge of a frost. So if you're only needing to protect five degrees, and you're doing what he's doing, which is that design, well sealed up, plus, you know, thermal battery in the form of water barrels will it it probably get you there. Would it do it here? Just two hundred and fifty miles north? And my instinct is it probably would not. I would probably lose plants that you're able to not lose in your climate. And that's okay. Because you don't need more than that. So why why would you spend the money to build You know, a structure out of SIP panels like the people in Colorado that I referenced. It probably doesn't make sense for you to spend that much. So I think building to your environment is really cool. Now, there's another guy that commented on that episode that I wanted to take this opportunity to mention. I have a link in the show notes today, and it says, Eddie's comments thread on greenhouses. So I linked directly to his first comment and the thread that resulted from it. So he has a video of his greenhouse, which is an aquaponics greenhouse, uh, on Facebook. And you can watch the video. And you can watch me razz him for VVS and him not know what it is. And I put a little cute link in there so he can go see what VVS is, which is, for those who don't know, vertical video syndrome. Uh, (laughs) But I said I forgive the VVS because it's such a great video. And uh, he's using a bubble wrap designed for greenhouses. Now, I haven't used it myself, so I can't talk about the long-term durability of it, but it looks really good. And it has an R value of like 1.7 or something like that. So I think he's doing his like inside and outside. So he's getting like like an, almost an R4 insulative value. Plus he built his greenhouse pretty much the way I said Anything not facing the sun is a hard wall, and it's insulated. And uh, he's also heating his water uh, during the day with solar heating, and then during the night he's heating his water with uh, an 1,100-watt uh, bucket heater uh, to help keep the water warm through the night. He's keeping tilapia. I think he's in, like, Missouri or say somewhere way colder than me, uh, and keeping tilapia through his winter and keeping his plants alive and all. So I thought that was worth pointing out. And so I gave a bunch of different options for greenhouse uh, skins and transparent uh, barriers. And I didn't really know about this bubble stuff, so I wanted to throw that in there for you as well. Uh, that's all I got on that one. But, uh, again, I, I I hope I wasn't too hard on the Texas Preppers greenhouse uh, design, uh, which you can look up. If you go to Google and put in Texas Prepper greenhouse, you'll find lots of people that have built them. Uh, I just think what they can do... Is fairly limited, but I think that with this bubble stuff, uh, they might do more. They might really do more uh, for you. And yes, combining it things with you know like black barrels full of water. And I think one of the things this guy said that makes a lot of sense. A lot of people don't do. What a lot of people do is they take their black barrels, they put them on the back wall, and they put all their plants in the front, because the plants need the light, right? Well, plants get plenty of light, especially in a kind of dome-shaped greenhouse. The barrels need to get the majority of the solar radiation during the day to get enough carryover heat to get you through your evening. So I like that approach very well. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one will be our last one from the for the day, and it's a question on what to plant and where to get it.
4: Hi, Jack. question is, what would you plant for a new-time gardener uh, right now? Um more background, the location is New Braunfels, Texas, about three acres, uh flat land. Um, uh we're talking about trees and vegetables um, that are easy and uh, most mostly perennials, uh as well as where would you buy those seeds and trees right now? with the msb or a non-msb
1: code thank you bye okay so let's let's break this in half okay because you're kind of conflating two things vegetables not that many vegetables that we think of are perennials uh specifically new brothels texas they're really not like peppers are perennial but not for us, unless we bring them inside, grow them in a greenhouse, something like that, right? Uh, I have, like, eight pepper plants right now that are in buckets in my garage uh, under grow lights to get through the winter so that they're ready to go next year. Uh, but they would not, they would not have – they'd be already be dead. We had uh, – one day we already got down to 23 degrees. Uh, peppers are dead. So vegetables, if you're growing vegetables this time of year, you're growing winter garden vegetables that can handle uh, a freeze. And you do not want, at this late in the game, to be putting seeds in the ground for those. So you're either buying plants if you're doing vegetables. You you can do cold crops right now. Uh, You can do broccoli. You can do uh, Brussels sprouts. You can do lettuces. You can do all kinds of stuff. But you need well-started plants, and you probably need some frost protection, uh, low tunnels or, or, or covers or row covers, something like that. And that's probably for a beginning gardener not the place to start. If you want a good garden uh, and you are a new gardener, I would use this time to build your beds uh, to amend your soil, to lay down a layer of mulch and to get ready to plant this spring. Perennials, now we're talking trees, bushes, shrubs, vines. Uh, Here's the good news. What should you be planting right now? Whatever you want. Whatever you want. As long as you can get dormant plants as to where to get them, with an MSB discount, Bob Wells Nursery. Uh, they're really the only people we have that sell plants and trees and stuff like that, that don't just sell seeds. And uh, so I would be comfortable right now planting anything that's dormant in Texas. I would be a little concerned planting some dormant plants because we have these mild you know, stretches of weather. We can sometimes go three or four weeks without a day below freezing three or four weeks without a day below 40 with days in the 80s and the ground starts to warm up to spring temperatures in the middle of winter so that can cause some dormant trees to come out of dormancy and that's not really the best thing for them and if you had plants that you were worried about that happening you're probably better off keeping them you know in the shade in pots or something like that and then planting them a little bit later in the winter as we move towards spring anyway um, that said, if you were getting plants that are dormant right now from Bob Wells Nursery, since they're in East Texas, they're naturalized to our climate, they're probably not going to come out of dormancy early, and a lot of that dormancy uh, is also maintained by day length. Um, so you're they're, they're probably not going to have that problem either just due to temperature, where I would worry a little bit. If I'm getting trees that were grown in ground and then pulled up bare root and pruned, and I'm getting them out of Michigan or something like that, um, if you're planting in some of the southern climates, there's it's not a high probability, but there's at least a potential, and you may want to hold off buying your plants a little bit later in the winter as long as you can get them then and plant them in like January. But I, right now I would pretty much just go ahead and plant anything, and Bob Wells would be where I would get it. Beginner mistake number one in southern climates, though. I buy a bunch of trees, I plant them, and I have no way to get water to them and I've done this myself, becoming over exuberant, planting lots of stuff I put in swales, it'll be fine. Um, Make sure that where you're planting trees, bushes, shrubs, and vines, you have the capacity to water them well for at least the first season. So if it's not a permanent watering solution, you're prepared to heal these plants in in spring and to get them through their first season, especially the summer drought that you know we're going to get. And that sometimes just means... Planting less per phase until so you're ready and you have the infrastructure, the plant, etc., ready to go. Um, perennial vegetables, I mean, you know, you're talking asparagus, uh, good King Henry, there's some stuff out there as perennial vegetables, but it's probably not even the time to be starting those. Uh, you probably could throw asparagus crumbs in the ground and be okay with it, but uh, I would wait till spring for just about any of your vegetables. But all your fruit trees, all your nut trees, uh, your bushes and shrubs, I'd go ahead and plant right now. What I wouldn't plant right now, um, is, uh, cane fruits or strawberry or anything like that. I would wait for spring to plant those and get them in the ground and be prepared for it. Uh, it's not that you can't do it. It just generally, it's not the best time of year to get them or to do it. Um, And so I would wait till spring for that. But your shrubs, your bushes, your trees, go ahead, order whatever you want from Bob. If he doesn't have it, look for another supplier. Make sure you're buying dormant bare roots and go ahead and plant them. If you're going to buy potted trees that are not dormant, um, you want to plant those in the spring or you want to plant those in the fall. Now, you can plant them any time of year, And if you can get potted trees right now, if you go by Lowe's, Home Depot, etc., and they got leftover stuff, as long as it's got good form to it it's in a pot, that's fine to plant that, especially if it's gone dormant itself. And as long as they haven't let it dry out, as long as you can take it give it a scratch test make sure it's got green under the bark, it's got a good cambium, it's alive, you can get some good deals on those right now and plant them. But make sure if you're buying potted trees, I don't care who they come from, you're pulling the dirt off them and you're getting those roots untangled and you're making sure you don't have what's called circling roots. When you have a root that goes all the way around the pot, that root needs to be pulled out, stretched out in the ground or pruned off. And one of the worst things that happens, it's worse than, than circling, it's up under roots. I don't know another word for them, circling from below. The root will go about hit the end of the pot, grow straight down to the bottom of the pot, hit the bottom of the pot grow straight back in, find that kind of empty space up under the tree, and grow straight up into the trunk of the tree. If you plant a tree with a main root like that in it, without getting that root out, that tree is going to die. And it might live for two or three years before it kills itself. And that's where you got this beautiful tree that's just starting to produce and it dies. Get those roots untangled. When the tree's dormant, you can pretty much take a tank of water, like a stock tank, and drench that root ball and, and clean all the dirt off that, that tree so you can see the roots, get the structure you want on the ground, pretty much you're bare-rooting them yourself. Uh, but again, plant whatever you want right now. Just make sure that you think about taking care of it and getting it through your winter. If you have anything more specific in mind, please follow up with me, and I will do this on a future show for you. With that, we've come to the end of another show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I enjoyed answering your calls today. I did not check the speak pipe today because I had a sufficient quantity of calls that followed the rules that were good questions uh, in my email box. I will go to the speak pipe first next week, but I am pretty low on calls for next week. So if you have been wanting to call in and be heard, this is the time to make your call. Get a Call in 866 65 think also, I am a little thin on expert council uh, stuff, though I've had commitments to have enough for tomorrow. But I could use questions for expert council members. Remember, we now have uh, Dr. Kelly. Taking your questions on animals and animal husbandry. She's a, a licensed DVM, a veterinarian. Uh, I don't have, a, I haven't had questions for Jeff Lawton for a long time. We have one of the most preeminent, uh, permaculturists in the world on our expert council. He needs questions. Uh, so get me questions for them. I haven't had a question for Ben Falk in the last couple weeks. Uh, the, you know, cold climate permaculture questions really up his alley. Um, some of my guys are pikers. I don't want to say who, uh, but, you know, Sean Mills, we now have, you know, in addition to Stephen Harris answering questions on solar and, 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 and off-grid living, a guy that lives it every day. Get those questions into me. Those ones need to come in by email, not phone. TSPC expert in the subject line. Tell me who the question is for and give me your question. If you're not sure, I will pick one for you, but get those in and we'll see what we can do for you. And I'm gonna be making some decisions when it comes to piking expert council members. Uh, I'm going to have my winter shutdown, and I'm going to take a good hard look at the response rate from people and have some come-to-Jesus meetings with some people, and some of these folks probably won't be on the council next year. That means that I'm going to probably need to add some council members. So if you would like to be considered for the expert council, let me know your background, including not just like if somebody's a piker and you've kind of recognized that and you can fill in for what they're doing. Like If you have an area that we, we're we weak on, I, I would love to have more, the more people we have on the expert council, the more good we can do for this community. It doesn't mean I'm going to say yes, but take a shot at it. And if I decide that it's not a rich enough environment uh, to get enough questions to make it worth being permanent, don't be offended by it, uh, but you know, if if it is, we'll move forward. And if not, you know, maybe I'll even say, hey, you know what, that seems like a, a an interesting area. Fill out a guest form. We'll get you on as a guest, see how people like you. So take a shot. You know, you, I'm going to tell you for the, the expert council members that, that take this seriously, that when they get a question, they get me an answer. I know it gives them a good ROI on their side hustle businesses or their permanent businesses. I know because I hear back from them. Uh, It's an excellent opportunity to reach a couple hundred thousand people a day, uh, you know, once or twice a month or or sometimes three times a month uh, if you take it seriously. So if you're interested, let me know. Uh, With that, let's talk about a way you can support us. One of the ways you can support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com. You can get on over to uh, Amazon and see their deals of the day. You can see all of our reviews. And no matter what you do, if you start there, you help support us. Uh, today, our item of the day is one I haven't brought around for a while, but I've brought around in the past. It's pepper, like black pepper. Uh, you might wonder, like, well, why black pepper is a you know, TSP item of the day? Well, it, it, it follows a philosophy that I've, I've lived for you know 20 years of my life, at least, and that is whenever whenever possible, pay less and get better quality at the same time. Look at the total cost of in, in, to your life in any area, and can I get more for less? And even if it's a little bit, when you do that 100 times a year for 20 years in a row, it's amazing the impact it makes on your financial life and the quality of your life. And Black Pepper's a place, believe it or not, you can do that. I get a pound of this, this, they're called Tilla uh, Peppers. This is the best black pepper there is in the world from a company called Spicy World. And um, I get a pound for thirteen fifty. dollars And this is a product that since I brought it around, every month, a couple dozen pounds of this stuff at least sells. I, like I said, I can see as an affiliate what sells, not who bought it. So I mean it's it's you know it's up there in the fifteen twenty quantity most months even when I don't talk about it which means people that have bought it are buying it again because they get the quality and the value. You go to the store and you buy two to four ounces of pepper. You're going to pay four to five bucks, and if you do the math on that. It's twenty to forty dollars on a subpar product that you use every day. If you like pepper, you're like me. You use it every day, and I believe in peppercorns, not pre-ground pepper. The oils in there are where all the magic is. So I buy this stuff. I fill up a bunch of jelly jars with it. I put a lid on them, and I vacuum seal them. And I take one, and I fill up my pepper mill, and I'm happy. Well, when that jar is about to get empty, I go to my pantry. I get another jar out. When I look, and there's like two jars left, I order another pound and fill up the next uh, deal. I do that with a lot of my spices, especially the ones I use a lot of. It saves money, you get better quality, and it's always fresh. And you can find it at tspaz.com or just go to the survivalpodcast.com and start scrolling down. You'll see it's one of the more, more most recent ones. Real quick, too, we have a new website. It's not very different, but it's a little bit different in its layout. It is much better for you guys and gals that are on mobile devices. It's now an adaptive site instead of a mobile version. Some people said, well, when I want to see uh, podcast episodes... I gotta scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. Um, up near the top of the, when you're on a, a device that's a mobile device that narrows it down, there's a little thing where you can click for the menu. And the bottom one allows you to select Amazon reviews, podcasts, blogs, or videos. So if you select podcasts, you'll only see podcasts. If you select videos, you'll only see videos. If you select Amazon reviews, you'll only see the Amazon reviews. And that will shorten that up. I am trying to figure out, how to set it so that you see um, the summaries of the post instead of the full posts. Uh, I haven't been able to get the blog to let me do that, so I'll work on it. But I think the new site layout is is pretty cool. I also, when, when I had Mr. Bill from the forums do the work for me, he left out the Listen to a Random Episode feature. I have restored that, so when you go to the site, you can see the Listen to a Random Episode link right at the top above the banners which means if you're on a mobile device and it's narrow, you have to scroll down past the post to see it. But if you click that link now, it will pull up a random podcast, not a random post. A new version of it that I found, I can set it to where it only pulls up podcasts. So if you're ever just wanting to, like, I want to listen to some old show, you hit that button, it'll pull it up for you. And you can always um, get to a random episode, just go to the survivalpodcast.com slash oldshow. Uh, and that will always redirect you to a random podcast, just a little thing there. And remember, those of you that don't want to, know, want to do a lot of typing, tspc.co always takes you to the main website. With that, let's go ahead and uh, talk about our song of the day today. Our song of the day today, again, we're, we're listening to Luca Stricanoli this week. And this is a guy that plays acoustic guitar. Luca's back to his, his basic guitar, which is a 6-string, a 7-string, and a bass all-in-one with some percussion things going on. Uh, The song is from the movie Gladiator, Now We Are Free. Now We Are Free. And uh, I think this fits kind of well with the concept of working for the state, being like slavery. Of course, in the movie, um, the Gladiator, the great General Maximus, gives his life in the end to free Rome from Commodus, the Emperor, which is very, 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 very remotely, loosely based on some actual uh, Roman history. It's you know not really grounded in reality. There's a lot of mishmash and moshplaws of things to make that storyline in that movie. Um, but he's willing to give us all for freedom. And if you think about it, the way it starts out, he's a he's a military general subject to Rome. And all he wants to do is go back to his farm. That's all he wants. He just wants to leave. And you know, as the story takes a turn, he loses that and he becomes an actual slave. And I think one of the messages of that movie is that he learns more about freedom as a slave than he, than he did as a general. But in the end, I think that freedom really is what we make of it. And I think we talk a lot about people that gave us freedom, people that granted us freedom, people that fight for our freedom. And the reality is I think that freedom is not a gift that can be given. Freedom is a right that must be exercised. No one can give you freedom. And no matter what we have as a society, we will always have hindrances to freedom. I don't think we'll, you know, in our lifetimes anyway, we're not going to see a 100% free society. We're just not. Anytime there's a state, there's hindrances to freedoms. Because it gives people the ability to use force by proxy to interfere with your freedom. So in any instance, one must demand and exercise their own freedom if they are truly to be free. And I think one way we can find freedom is through beauty. And in our minds and allowing our minds to work so that we can analyze the situation and figure out what are my options here versus just taking what comes my way. And that's what the segment on you know government employment being like slavery was really all about. As as an individual and in even just the private sector of employment, you have a lot more latitude in figuring out, well, how do I do how do I deal with this? As an entrepreneur, you have even more. If you get to the point where you don't have to work anymore for a living, you have even more. But in all of those instances, there's some ability for you to make decisions for yourself to alter your fate and your future. And if we are to be free, we need to exercise those things. Again, we, we think of freedom as a gift granted to us by a prior generation or by the people that fight our wars or what have you. But freedom is so precious That it must be claimed to be real. It actually cannot be given from one person to another. What we are given by those who sacrifice in the past for the future is that opportunity, not the freedom itself. Think about that and try to let this piece of music allow your mind to kind of drop a lot of the crap that is in the world today Because it is when we drop that crap that two things happen. One, it is only when we really rest the mind that we can develop empathy. That's a scientific fact that I won't get into today. Maybe we'll talk about it in the future. But the other thing is, it is in that decoupling that the mind is allowed to reboot. Just like restarting a computer, we can take a problem and look at it anew and find our own solutions. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.